Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am the Projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now, come join your host, Vic Sage, as we enter the vault to once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. <laughs> what am I doing here? What happened? Well, you fell into San Francisco Bay. All right, Projectionist. Looks like everything is working properly. Glad to see the haunted drive-in pack for tonight's Alfred Hitchcock triple feature. I am a little surprised, though. You went with Vertigo first and are going to follow it up with Psycho. Figure you would have programmed Rear Window or the 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. It seemed like it would be the picture that the patrons would enjoy the most after the Todd psychological thriller that is 1958's Vertigo. The delightful creepiness of Psycho will most assuredly ratchet up that tension even more, which the birds should offer a pleasant release from the previous two pictures. Yes? Hey, makes sense to me, man. By the way, how is that tracking spell coming along? I know that Rockford J and the vault security teams are ready to assist you in hunting down where the plague rats are hiding. It is proving to be as much a confounding puzzle as that accursed rainstorm that plagued the haunted drive-in for months, Victor. While we may have been fortunate enough to destroy those room-carved bones that were hidden by the plague rats while constructing the vault beneath the haunted drive-in, dispelling that unnatural storm, there has been magic placed upon those quills and tufts of hair left behind that are countering my own conjurings. I will figure it out, though. It just might take me a little longer than I had originally planned. Sorry to hear that, my friend. At the very least, we can take some small comfort that things in the vault have returned to normal. The floodwaters are gone, and that mildew smell in the lower levels of the vault has thankfully subsided, thanks in no small part to the amount of hard work put in by the caretakers. Indeed. I feel, however, I must change the subject, dear boy. You know what these papers I hold in my hand represent? Not a clue, man. Are they insurance claims from our co-workers for being stuck here at the haunted drive-in for a couple of months, thanks to that storm? How droll. No, these are printed out electronic missives from our dear listeners concerning our Godzilla vs. Kong radio broadcast. Might I ask you what it is we attempt to do with the Saturday Frights radio broadcast, Serge? 
Okay, I'll play along. On the podcast, we talk about retro horror movies and television shows, or even recently released horror entertainment that we feel the listeners might want to know about, offering up interesting trivia and some behind the scenes on how the subject of the podcast made it to the big or small screen. Certainly, including your overly long synopsis for each film an episodic television show that we cover on our radio broadcasts. But do we not attempt to provide factual information for the listening audience at home as well? Of course, projectionist. Although, as I always say on this podcast, and for over ten years of writing on the likes of the Retroist and the pop culture Retrorama site, I'm not an expert on anything. Enough beating around the bush. What's this all about? Did you not question why this latest picture in the Monsterverse did not spend some time on what became a Vera Farmiga's character of Dr. Emma Russell? Okay, my friend. Jeez, you have to draw everything out, you know? After recording the podcast, I realized that her character was killed in Godzilla King of the Monsters. Although, to be fair, it's not like we see her die. That is probably because you don't. Director Michael Doherty assumed that audiences would realize she perished when everything around her ignited and melted as Godzilla strode towards King Ghidorah. Yes? You're totally right, man. I absolutely made a mistake. Although, in my mind, I would have sworn she was on the chopper with the rest of the characters. And, not to change the subject, was it? Didn't you, on a previous episode of the podcast, say that Pumpkinhead was released back in 1985 instead of 1988? I said no such thing, Serge. How dare you impugn my knowledge of motion pictures? Come on, man. Calm down. It's just a bit of fun. Some gentle ribbing. Projectionist, you're hitting me with like three pieces of rolled up paper. You are only human after all. I think. What was that last comment? I said it's all good between you all, you and the listeners. Besides, you've done a lot worse to me these past six years, to say nothing of how you used to treat Rockford J. You think he enjoyed all those times you put him in the quiet hole? It was good for him. Good for him? It made him stronger, yes. He has survived longer than any of the previous interns. Hey, hey, speak of the devil. Hey, Rockford, the projectionist and I were just talking about you. Hey, Vic, projectionist. I hope it wasn't anything too serious. Rockford J, I was preparing to thrash Victor for his recent scandalous statements, pointing out how he has besmirched my good name with the many patrons of the haunted drive-in as well as reminding him how your visits to the quiet hall help to prepare you for the rigors of working in the vault, eh? That is a novel way to look at it, projectionist. Are you trying to imply something, Rockford J? Hey, Rockford, you still going to be getting off work in time to catch Psycho? Oh, yeah, Vic. Closing down the concession stand right now, in fact. 
We've had something odd happen, though, that I wanted to report before I closed up for the night. We are out of bags of popcorn kernels. Nonsense! I noted we received a shipment just the other day. Oh, I know we did, Projectionist. Remember that I had to unload the delivery myself when you said that your back was causing you issues? By the way, I just have to say there's something really odd about that driver and his trucking rig. They smell like brimstone? I'm sure it is just the exhaust from the truck itself, Rockford J. That might be true, but why doesn't the driver ever talk? I've tried to shoot the breeze with him, but he never responds. And his skin is so pale. I don't think I've ever seen this guy, Rockford. Be glad. I'm not trying to be rude, but there's something really off about him. Plus, every single time that I'm unloading the supplies, those large and rusted metal doors of his 18-wheeler swing shut and almost clip me. I, I swear that when that happens, it almost sounds like the truck is laughing. Rock for Jay. This all sounds like just a case of your overactive imagination, dear boy. A trucker who sold his soul to the devil and must pay it off by continuously driving a trucking rig crafted from the forges of hell. These things simply cannot happen, yes. Projectionist, no one said anything about a trucker selling his soul to the devil or a truck from hell. I think we are getting off subject, Sage. Rockford J is concerned about these missing bags of popcorn kernels. Yeah, the 20 bags in the storage closet are gone. No sign of forced entry, and I checked the security footage. It's been erased. Great. So this is starting up again. How is it that no one on staff are catching the plague rats in the act? Rockford J. I think it best you just close up the concession stand. I will be sure that we get a new delivery of popcorn kernels tomorrow afternoon. I assume that your schedule will allow you to be on hand to accept the delivery. <laughs> Tomorrow's my day off, projectionist. I bet that we could get- It will be done in record time if you just hustle a little when unloading and stacking those bags of popcorn kernels. As a matter of fact, I will put in a double order. <sighs> okay, projectionist. Good, good. I am glad this matter is settled. I'm sorry, Rockford. I'll tell you what, though. I'll drop by and lend you a hand, okay? Thanks, Vic. Hey, are you still going to be talking about the birds on the new podcast? We sure are, man. Do you have any memories of seeing the movie? I don't have any specific memories. I know the first time I ever watched the birds was on cable, probably on TBS on a Sunday afternoon. Make sure you tell everybody, though, that John Carpenter set part of the fog in Bodega Bay. Thanks for sharing that, Rockford. I'll see you tomorrow afternoon. I'll see you both tomorrow. Good luck with the podcast. Victor, look at the control panel. The recording light is on. Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Saturday Frights radio broadcast. 
we have a classic horror picture to discuss for your listening pleasure this evening. 1963's The Birds. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren, Jessica Tandy, and Veronica Cartwright. When was the first time that you saw this picture, Victor? Actually, it is just the same as Rockford. I happened to catch the birds on a Sunday showing on WTBS. This would have to have been in 79, or possibly even 1980. My father had of course seen the movie when it was originally released to theaters back on March 29th of 1963. He was pretty excited when he found out it was going to be shown that Sunday, and so after breakfast, we settled down in front of the TV set in the living room and watched The Birds. If you've seen the movie for yourself, you know there isn't really anything that needs to be edited for when it's shown on television. You mean besides the discovery of the corpse of Farmer Dan Fawcett, eh? Getting a little ahead of yourself, as usual, my friend. But that is true. Even then, though, instead of cutting out the scene entirely, they included just a flash of the farmer's plucked-out eyeless face. Just enough to realize what had happened to the poor man. That might have actually made it even scarier, as my young mind rushed to fill in other details. By the time that I caught the birds, I was already well on my way to becoming a fan of the Animals Gone Wild or Nature's Revenge genre of horror pictures. I'd already seen the likes of 1976, The Food of the Gods, and 77's Day of the Animals, as well as Empire of the Ants. So, I absolutely love the birds, to say the very least. But there is a reason that I remember seeing it for the first time so vividly. It was after the movie was over, and my father had to take a trip uptown. Apparently, a storm had begun to move in. And when I was a kid, our house was located just off from what could truthfully be described as woods. So imagine when we left the house to find that the power lines, trees, and even the fence around the backyard were filled with crows. I was the first out the door, and I just stopped as they were cawing, and it was thunderous. It was at that point, listeners, that my father slammed the front door, and boom, they all took to the sky. <laughs> Oh my! I backpedaled so hard that I nearly knocked my father off his feet. Now, I'm not afraid of birds at all, but having just seen the film, I was a little jumpy. Were you aware that the film was based on a short story by Daphne du Maurier? I wasn't aware of it when I first watched it, of course, but I believe there is a credit in the title sequence, Projectionist. Although, I've not had the pleasure of reading the short story myself. Is it any good? It was first published in her collection of 1952 stories entitled The Apple Tree, a short novel and several long stories. It bears very little resemblance to the picture by Alfred Hitchcock, however, as it takes place near the ending of the Second World War in a seaside town near Cornwall. The main character, Nat Hawken, is a farmhand who finds that birds are becoming aggressive, with attacks quickly spreading from their sleepy little town to all of the United Kingdom. The author supposedly claimed that she got the idea for the short story when witnessing a farmer plowing his field, being attacked by seagulls. 
You know, that is something that has always surprised me about some of the reviews of the birds. The criticism of it's just birds, that it's not a scary premise. To that, I will say, you've never been attacked by a bird. My cousin, when she was very little, when visiting my grandparents, I guess got too close to a bird's nest in the backyard, and that bird went after her over and over. When it was all said and done, she ended up needing stitches. Anyway, the thought that hundreds of birds of all kinds, from crows, blackbirds, seagulls, and others, just started swarming the citizens of, of Bodega Bay, and that people didn't think that was a frightening thought. I just don't understand that, I guess. Well, I would like to add that Alfred Hitchcock was aware of the short story, as it had appeared in one of his own short story collections. In Alfred Hitchcock Presents, My Favorites in Suspense, which was first published in 1959. Huh, I wasn't aware of that, Projectionist. Does that surprise you, dear listeners? There are a few hardcover copies down in the vault library if you wish to seek it out. The volume contains stories from H.G. Wells and Jack Finney as well. Finney was the writer of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? The one and the same. While Alfred Hitchcock liked the idea of Daphne du Maurier's premise of people finding themselves under attack by legions of birds, for all intents and purposes, an apocalyptic ending for mankind, he asked screenwriter Evan Hunter to adapt the short story into a full-length screenplay. You might be interested to know, dear listeners, that The Birds was the third story by Daphne du Maurier that Alfred Hitchcock had adapted. The first time was with 1939's Jamaica Inn, which starred Maureen O'Hara and Charles Lawton. The following year, Alfred Hitchcock directed Rebecca from the novel of the same name, which was published two years prior. That picture starred the likes of Joan Fontaine, Laurence Olivier, and George Sanders. I know that Evan Hunter had written stories for the Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, and even provided two stories and a teleplay for the extremely popular Alfred Hitchcock Presents television series. In fact, as I understand it, Projectionist, Hitchcock was finding it a little difficult in finding a worthy follow-up film to 1960's Psycho. The box office hit had the director trying to find the perfect script or source material to adapt. That certain something that might be just as popular as his previous film. From doing a little research, one of Hunter's original ideas was that citizens of Bodega Bay would have a dark secret, and that the birds are, I guess we could say, nature's way of enacting revenge for whatever horrible things they had done. Which, as Rockford mentioned a little while ago, Bodega Bay is mentioned in John Carpenter's often overlooked masterpiece, The Fog. Tom Atkins' character is the one that mentions the seaside town. I can't help but wonder if Carpenter and Deborah Hill had heard about Hunter's idea and incorporated that into their screenplay. I highly doubt that is the case, Victor. 
I'm sure you're right, my friend. Just something that popped into my head when I found out about it. Another early idea that Evan Hunter proposed to Hitchcock was that Tippi Hedren's character of Melanie Daniels was that she was a school teacher and that she would show up in Bodega Bay and then suddenly weird things with birds would start to happen, eventually becoming the deadly attacks like in the finished film. Yes, I have heard that as well, Sage. Changing subject, do you happen to know where the birds was filmed? It was in Bodega Bay. I mean, the actual town in California. You are correct. And as usual, wrong. <laughs> they did shoot scenes in Bodega Bay, as you have mentioned. But besides a quick shot in San Francisco and a few other locales, most of the film was shot on stages 28, 32, and 44 at Universal Studios. They meticulously built replicas of the home for Suzanne Plachette's character of Annie Hayworth, in addition to the Brenner residence and farm. Obviously, the phone booth that Melanie Daniels takes shelter in outside of the Tides restaurant was on a soundstage with a matte painting by Albert Whitlock behind her. Oh, I was lucky enough to see a documentary about the making of the birds many years ago. In fact, it might even have been one of the special features on the DVD release for the movie. Anyway, they take care to mention how much of the background imagery in the film is in fact matte paintings by Whitlock. Generally, a marriage of the matte painting and parts of the film. Friends, I guarantee you that you are familiar with movies that the legendary Whitlock worked his magic on. He got his start with Hitchcock actually in 1934's The Man Who Knew Too Much as an assistant in the miniatures department, but he even had uncredited work as a title designer for 1954's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and would in his early years do quite a bit of work for Walt Disney, from Darby O'Gill and the Little People to Zorro. Just a few of the highlights from his career include Roger Corman's Pit and the Pendulum, Munster Go Home, The War Wagon, Star Trek, the original series, The Andromeda Strain, The Man Who Would Be King, The Blues Brothers, Ghost Story, 1982's Cat People, John Carpenter's The Thing, Twilight Zone the Movie, Clue, and Chaplin. But to swing it back around to the birds, you might not realize you were looking at work by Whitlock. To piggyback on what the projectionist mentioned about with the phone booth attack. In addition, the overhead view of Bodega Bay, giving us a look at the birds amassing over the seaside town with the fire raging in the center of it. The only thing that is real in that scene is the fire in the very center of the town and parking lot. The entire seaside town is a matte painting with additional effects used to insert the birds into the shot, of course. With your constant declarations of being an aficionado of classic animation, dear boy, do you know which Disney alumnus had a hand in adding those attacking birds to the scenes in the film? I do indeed, Projectionist. That was Abiworks, who I believe we totally mentioned in our last podcast episode for Joe Dante's The Howling. Iworks just so happened to develop the sodium vapor process, aka yellow screen, for Walt Disney Productions. It was commonly used back in the day instead of the blue screen process. It allowed, as I understand it, for a better mingling of actors and background footage. 
Indeed. In fact, in the scene in which the sparrows pour out of the chimney and fly around the Brunner residence, there are no birds in that room at all. All of the actors were reacting to imaginary birds. Beyond technological wizardry, like with the sodium vapor process, Alfred Hitchcock knew his craft well. There are many scenes where we see the legions of birds, like the crows in the schoolyard. But were you aware, many of those birds standing vigil were merely cardboard cutouts, as the director knew that if he placed some of the real birds next to them, the audience's eyes would be drawn to those few real ones. Their minds would fill in the blanks, yes? Absolutely, man. Speaking of the feathered co-stars of Tippi Hedren and Rod Taylor, it was bird trainer Ray Berwick who was responsible for some of the star birds. In many of the scenes, say, where the seagulls head literally straight into the camera, were accomplished by tying a piece of meat below or above the camera. None of the birds were hurt, and they took care to place large nets around the interiors of the sound stages so they wouldn't escape. Although I'd have heard a few of the crows did escape, with some citizens of Bodega Bay joking that they're still hanging around their little town. There were mechanical birds constructed for the picture, but the filmmakers felt that the real deal looked better. That sadly includes when Tippi Hedren spent what she says was five days having birds tossed at her by production hands for the scene in the attic. You might be interested to know, in the original script, it was actually... Hold up there, projectionist. We're just about ready to dive into the synopsis for the birds. But before we do, I think we should take just a brief moment and talk about how the movie was received when it was originally released back on March 29th of 1963. I have told you before, Sage. It did very well at the theater I was managing at, at the time. Well, I meant more of what the rest of the country thought about the film, my friend. From looking online, it appears that the movie cost upwards of $3.3 million to produce, but managed to bring in $11.4 million by the time it finished its theatrical run. That is a far cry, however, from the take of the 1960s psycho earned, dear listeners. I recall reading in the trade magazines of the day that it cost a little over $800,000 to bring Psycho to the big screen, and it earned itself $50 million at the box office. That is quite true. However, the birds required all of those effects shots, which obviously drove up the budget. At least it wasn't seen as a box office bomb. However, it seems the critics, like the fans themselves, were divided on how they felt about the movie. Philip K. Schur said in his March 29, 1963 review that Hitchcock, quote, was once widely quoted as saying he hated actors. After his 1960 Psycho, and now The Birds, it must be fairly obvious that he's extended his abhorrence to the whole human race. For reasons hardly justified either dramatically or aesthetically, the old master has become a master of the perverse. He has gone all out for shock's sake, and it's too bad. End quote. 
But critics, as we always say, are paid to be critical of movies. The April 1st review from Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, though, had an opposite reaction, saying that The Birds was, quote, a horror film that should raise the hackles on the most courageous and put goose pimples on the toughest hide, end quote. Okay, projectionist, let's take a quick break here. I think you have a little something to share with the listeners. Most certainly, Victor. Friends, if you've not seen The Birds for yourself, you might want to pause the podcast because we will be going into full spoilers after the break. Go ahead. We'll wait for you. Let us see if it is possible for you, dear boy, just once to be concise enough with the synopsis that it doesn't take an hour. (laughs) Just roll the clip, projectionist. Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about our good friends, the birds. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. Birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. Yes, they attack the children, attack them. What's the matter with all the birds? Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. Those gulls attack. Impossible. They came in right down the chimney. Why are they doing this? It's the end of the world. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. That would hardly be possible. Mitch, don't! The five continents of the world contain more than a hundred billion birds. All at once, the birds were everywhere. Why don't you all go home? Lock your doors and windows. Did you get the windows in the attic? When do you think they'll come? What happens when you run out of wood? I don't know. You don't know? When will you know? When we're all dead? I tell you what, my friend, you were always busting my chops about the length of the synopsis. How about you start us off this time? (laughs) Of course, if you are willing to play such games with our dear listeners' precious time, it would be my pleasure. As the film begins, we are introduced to Melanie Daniels, a socialite living in San Francisco, where her father runs a successful newspaper empire. The young woman is visiting a local pet store in the hopes of purchasing a minor bird for an aunt that she obviously wishes to annoy with its mimicry of speech. It is while the elderly pet shop owner is attempting to learn when the bird is going to be delivered and steps away from the desk that Mitch Brenner enters the store, mistaking Melanie Daniels for an employee. Mitch is played by Rod Taylor, who you listeners might recognize from 1960's The Time Machine or as Winston Churchill in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Quite so. Mitch Brenner is a lawyer by trade, and he's entering the pet shop on an errand to purchase a pair of lovebirds for his little sister is something of a ruse. Well, I think he's in the store to buy those two birds, my friend. It's just that he is shining Melanie on. He recognizes her and is taking some small delight in her pretending to be an employee. It turns out that Melanie is quite known around town and the world for being a prankster. And it sounds like some of her pranks have turned destructive. Like the last one, if I remember correctly, involved a broken plate glass window. So Mitch is giving her a little taste of her own medicine, trying to show her that a prank isn't always so funny when you are on the receiving end. 
Something that Melanie Daniels does not appear to appreciate. But if that is the case, why, after Mitch Brenner leaves without purchasing the birds, does she pay for the lovebirds herself and decide to deliver them to his apartment? I think that Tippi Hedren and Rod Taylor definitely have an on-screen chemistry projectionist. And these early moments of the film have a really interesting antagonistic quality to the conversations between Melanie and Mitch as they start to realize they are actually quite attracted to each other. It almost plays off like a romantic comedy. Except for the fact, of course, this is Alfred Hitchcock trying to get us to lower our guard. That is very true, dear listeners. Mitch Brunner, however, is not at his apartment. He is returned home to Bodega Bay, where his family has a farm. So, that is why Melanie Daniels takes the journey from San Francisco to the seaside town. But how to find out where the Brunner residence is, yes? Exactly, my friend. Stopping off at a general store, she offhandedly questions the clerk about the Brenners, learning that the household is made up of his mother Lydia, played by the legendary Jessica Tandy, who, by the way, was acquainted with Alfred Hitchcock through her husband, the equally legendary Hume Cronin. Also in the household is Mitch's 11-year-old sister. The problem is, the shopkeeper doesn't remember her name. Hard to give a birthday gift without a name, eh? Absolutely. The shopkeeper is able to direct Melanie to someone who will know the young girl's name, Bodega Bay's school teacher Annie Hayworth, who is played by Suzanne Plachette of the Shaggy DA in the extremely popular The Bob Newhart Show. I would say that Annie is quite observant, as after Melanie pays her a visit, she goes ahead and tells her that Mitch's sister is named Kathy. But it seems to me that she knows why Melanie has shown up in Bodega Bay. The real reason. She, of anyone, as we're about to find out, is understanding of Mitch's charms. And although Melanie could drive to the Brunner farm, she decides instead to rent a boat so that she can cross the bay without being noticed. That prankster side of her is in full effect. She waits until Lydia and Kathy leave the house and Mitch is headed into the barn, rowing the boat to their little private dock and then sneaking into the house. Which I believe that Mitch Brenner, being an attorney, would point out is criminal trespassing. I will admit that as a kid, that was sort of in the back of my mind. She just walks into their home and leaves the lovebirds with a letter for Kathy. Sneaking back out, she gets back into her boat and begins to row back to town. When Mitch happens to enter the house. Although we do not see it, the man obviously realizes someone has been in there and runs out looking for the unexpected guest. Eventually, seeing Melanie making for the docks, he jumps jumps in his vehicle and drives out to meet her. Mitch Brenner would appear to be happy to see Melanie Daniels and vice versa. Although the main concern is seen to the young woman after a seagull swoops down and strikes her in the head, not only dazing the socialite, but drawing blood. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock mentioned that he tried his best to constantly put a little focus on birds in these earlier moments of the movie. A reminder, he said to the audience, that things were about to happen. And this seagull attack is just the first strike. Obviously, the filmmaker didn't have a trained seagull attack Tippi Hedren. The effect included a fake gull on a wire that slid down and struck her head. In this case, grazed her head. 
Then they use that sodium vapor process to insert a real seagull flying so it really does look like it swooped down and hit her. Mitch is obviously concerned and leads Melanie to the Tide's diner. Thankfully, the wound isn't serious enough to warrant any stitches, but while the two are talking, Melanie claims that she came to Bodega Bay to look up an old school friend, Annie Hayworth. While seeing to Melanie, Lydia shows up at the diner, and after a brief introduction, it is really obvious that Mitch's mother has an issue with the younger woman. Now, friends, this is the iconic Jessica Tandy we're talking about here. Quite a few years from her Oscar-winning role in Driving Miss Daisy, perhaps, but while she doesn't frown or even act unfriendly exactly towards Melanie, you see something pass behind her eyes, and it is less than wholesome. A problem, then, for her to deal with when Mitch Brenner brazenly invites Melanie Daniels to dinner at their home. To say the least, projectionist, after securing a place to stay for the night with Annie, who, by the way, is a little hesitant to rent her spare room to Melanie, it turns out there is literally no place for Melanie to go. Everything appears to be booked. Do you believe that, though, Victor? Could this not be a case of Bodega Bay not welcoming this stranger? I can see maybe why you would think so, but it actually seems that for the most part, the people Melanie comes in contact with in the little town are pretty darn welcoming. Anyway, attending the dinner allows Melanie to meet Kathy, who is quite blown away by the gift of the lovebirds. By the way, the young girl is played by none other than future alien and the Witches of Eastwick's Veronica Cartwright. If Melanie is attempting to win points with Mitch through his sister, it would appear that what was originally intended as a prank is succeeding. Of interest, though, is something that Lydia reveals. Their chickens at the farm are acting oddly refusing to eat the chicken feed they've bought. In fact, she ends up complaining to the store clerk over the phone about it. Her theory is there's something wrong with the chicken feed itself, and she's troubled to learn that her nearby neighbor, Dan Fawcett, is apparently having the same issue. The kicker, though, is, as she learns from the store clerk, is that Dan Fawcett didn't buy his chicken feed from the same place. It would seem that Lydia Brenner has read some of the gossip columns concerning Melanie Daniels and her exploits abroad and has quite made up her mind that the socialite is trouble. And the elder Brenner has no qualms with letting her son know how she feels about the young woman, who it has been said, while recently visiting Rome, was said to have jumped into a public fountain. Sans clothing. Mitch proves he is just as capable as taking a joke or ribbing too far, as he walks Melanie to her car after dinner. He brings up this gossip, but it turns out that not only had Melanie been pushed into that fountain, fully clothed I might add, but the paper that reported it is run by a rival of her father. Mitch's behavior has the understandable effect of angering Melanie, and rightfully so in all honesty. She drives back to Annie's house, and the ice between the two young women is fully broken when the school teacher reveals she she and Mitch were once romantically involved. Although, dear listeners, it was Lydia Brenner who doused the torch of the passion as she was not accepting of her son's attention to Annie Hayworth. And after Mitch Brenner's father passed away, he found himself needing to comfort his mother and sister. The school teacher decided to end their relationship as not to be a burden on Mitch Brenner. The school teacher, however, found that if she could not be romantically involved with a lawyer, 
she could at least be friends, which is why she settled down in Bodega Bay. She even makes the point of mentioning that afterwards, Lydia Brenner and herself became the best of friends. Suzanne Plachette wonderfully conveys how much she is still in love with Mitch. Not with tears, but thanks to her excellent performance, you can just pick up on her longing and regret. The two are interrupted when Mitch calls to talk to Melanie, not only apologizing for his boorish behavior, but asking if she will join them for Kathy's birthday party the following day. After that phone conversation, however, there is a loud commotion at the front door of Annie Hayworth's domicile. Upon opening it, the two women find a seagull has died by slamming into the door. The school teacher comments that it must have gotten lost in the dark, to which Melanie points out that it's a full moon and brightly lit. A harbinger of things to come, listeners. At Kathy's birthday party the following day, instead of being completely put off by Lydia being overprotective of her son, Melanie finds it somewhat comforting. It turns out, as she explains to Mitch, that her own mother left her and her father when she was a child. Perhaps the two would bond a little more if the party wasn't suddenly interrupted by an attack. Seagulls, and they are completely vicious in this assault, with some of the smaller children being knocked to the ground and the seagulls swooping down and pecking at their faces and neck. Obviously, Melanie, Annie, Lydia, Mitch, and the rest of the adults spring into action, rescuing the children before there are any fatalities. And as quick as they arrived, the seagulls fly away. And while Melanie hadn't even planned to stay past the first day, she ends up having dinner with the Brenners once again. Although it should be pointed out that we learned that Annie begged off dinner as she needed to go home. It seems that Annie Hayworth does not want to come between Melanie Daniels and Mitch Brenner, yes? That's totally what she's doing. Annie may pine for Mitch, but I think she hopes that Melanie stands a chance, as she obviously has fallen for him. While having dessert in the living room, Melanie spots a lone sparrow that has managed to enter the house by way of the fireplace. She barely has time to get Mitch's attention. I mean, after two bird attacks in as many days, it's reasonable to be suspicious, right? That is when hundreds of sparrows pour forth from the fireplace and swarm the Brunners and Melanie Daniels. Mitch Brunner is able to successfully drive off the birds, although they have managed to wreck the Brunner residence in the process. Yeah. In fact, it's almost like maybe, just maybe, that was the intention of the birds during this attack. For obvious reasons, Lydia is rather shaken up by the day's ordeal. And as they have an extra room, Melanie ends up spending the night. The following morning, Lydia decides to drive Kathy to school, which gives her the chance to pay a visit to Dan Fawcett. If you recall, he was having issues with his chickens not eating their feed too. One of his ranch hands informs Lydia that Dan hasn't been down from his house yet, which is odd for a farmer to sleep in, right? Lydia enters the house and it's completely quiet. Calling out for Dan, she notices the door to his bedroom is ajar, and when she peeks her head in, she sees something that fills her with such horror it robs her of her voice. Dan is dead on the bedroom floor, his clothes shredded with the bedroom windows broken and dead seagulls and blackbirds littering the room. 
More shocking than his bloodied and torn face, though, dear listeners, is that his eyes have been plucked out from his head. Here's a bit of trivia for you. This is another scene that benefits from the map painting work of Albert Whitlock. The actor had his eyes darkened out, and blood from his grievous wounds were applied on the set. But the map painting makes it look like there are only dark and hollow sockets where his eyes once were. Lydia naturally runs from the house, pausing to attempt to say something to the ranch hand, but she literally cannot speak. She has been scared so badly. Instead, she gets into her truck and races back to Mitch and Melanie. The events of the past few days are all too much for Lydia to take, and while Mitch rushes to meet the sheriff at Farmer Dan Fawcett's place, Melanie offers to watch over the older woman, an act of kindness that does not go unnoticed by Lydia, and she opens up to Melanie that she depended on the strength of her husband and Mitch for so long that the very thought of her son possibly leaving her fills her with a terrible dread. Melanie and Lydia are able to sort of come to an understanding about one another. Which is why Melanie agrees to go pick up Kathy from school, so that Lydia might get a chance to sleep off some of the stress. As Melanie Daniels arrives at the schoolhouse, she can hear the children's voices raised in a song from within the building. Not wishing to intrude, she decides to sit on the bench in front of the schoolhouse, smoking a cigarette to pass the time. Projectionist, we should point out that Alfred Hitchcock plays with the audience a bit here, leaving the camera on Melanie for far too long without a cut, almost like he's teasing us, especially when the playground behind the young woman begins to fill up with crows and blackbirds. The horror washes over the audience when Melanie turns around to see there are now hundreds of them perched on the playground equipment, and after the last few days, she has no doubt why they are there, waiting patiently and mostly quietly for the children to leave the school. Absolutely, Victor. Very calmly, Melanie Daniels enters the schoolhouse, just as Annie Hayworth is about to dismiss her students. She guides the teacher to the windows, alerting her of the dangers that await outside. Annie Hayworth instructs the children that they are all to quietly leave the schoolhouse, and when she tells them to run, they are to run as fast as they possibly can to their homes. Yet again, Alfred Hitchcock toys with the audience because it cuts from inside the school back to the playground and those legions of blackbirds. He obviously knew the audience would be curious to see what is going on with the children, but he keeps the camera on the birds. Until finally, when it feels like we can't take it a second longer, the birds take to the sky. And we see that the kids are all running along with Annie and Melanie for their very lives. It is a brutal scene as the children are screaming and crying as they run down the hill from the school, with the birds landing on their backs, pecking at their faces. And it's not mentioned or dwelled upon, but you definitely see a few of the children fall to the ground with the birds attacking them. And I'm not trying to be dour, but I think it's obvious that some of these poor children never make it home. In fact, one of Kathy's friends falls and is being savaged when Melanie and Mitch's sister turn back to rescue her, taking shelter inside a car, which doesn't have the keys in the ignition. So Melanie lays in on the horn, presumably to try and scare off the savage birds, but also to get the attention of the folks in town to let them know they're in trouble. Just as with the birthday party attack, this assault is over as quickly as it had begun. 
any volunteers to take Kathy and her wounded friend while Melanie heads to the diner to make a phone call to her father so that she might report on what is going down in Bodega Bay. While obviously Mitch, Lydia, Kathy, and Annie, even the sheriff of Bodega Bay, realize something is seriously wrong with, with the behavior of the birds, it's Melanie who has the foresight to be concerned that this is possibly not a local issue, or at least it might not stay that way for long. The diners and even the staff overhear all of this and are skeptical, to put it mildly. That is, until Mitch and the sheriff show up and confirm that these attacks went down. Although, there's an elderly woman who happens to be an avid ornithologist who continues to scoff at the very idea that birds could muster enough intelligence and organizational ability to tack as a group. She does warn everyone listening to her, though, that if this was to happen, humanity wouldn't stand a chance. Although, all of these stories, though, are alarming enough that a mother and her children are frightened to the point of the woman deciding to cut their lunch short and flee Bodega Bay. Those plans are cut short, however, as the birds descend upon Bodega Bay in full force. The mother and her children take shelter in the diner, while Mitch and others attempt to help a gas station attendant who is struck down by the birds. This action causing gas to spill from the station down into the parking lot of the diner, where a businessman foolishly is lighting a cigarette and drops the match, causing an explosion, leading the fire department to come under attack as they attempt to halt the blaze before it sweeps through the town. Others inside the diner risk the assault from the birds, including Melanie, although she eventually rushes to the safety of a nearby phone booth, getting a clear view of the carnage around her, as people of Bodega Bay rush by her, leaving bloody handprints on the glass of the phone booth as they're pecked to death. We can also see a driver attempting to escape, but a seagull is within the car, pecking at his face. In a glass phone booth offers very little protection for Melanie Daniels when the amassed birds begin to smash against it. Suicide attacks, as it were, as they are killed on impact. After long and extremely tense minutes pass, the birds scatter, although the destruction they left behind is staggering. Broken glass, crashed cars, dead birds littering the street, and many, many people have been wounded in this attack. Mitch is able to get to Melanie, who is pretty much shell-shocked from what she just witnessed. After guiding her back to the diner, though, they find it empty because the group that were within are all but huddled down on the floor inside a hallway to the bathrooms. And while that elderly woman, the expert in birds, refuses to meet her gaze, there are more than a few that are looking at Melanie with daggers in their eyes. In fact, that mother from earlier has what I can only describe as a breakdown, saying that she was told by some of the others that all of the bird attacks began when Melanie arrived in town, hysterically yelling at the young woman that she believes she is simply evil and has brought this terror down on them all. Melanie ends up slapping the woman in an attempt to snap her out of her tirade but it's pretty obvious that Mitch needs to get Melanie out of that diner. One reason is they need to go and find Kathy, who Annie was looking after while Melanie went to use the phone. The second reason is it appears that the people of Bodega Bay might not be too happy now to have Melanie in their little town, at least judging by those reactions at the diner. There is more horror awaiting them though, dear listeners, as they reach Annie Hayworth's residence to find the young school teacher laying dead on the walk to her house, bloodied and torn, with Kathy Brenner 
crying out to them from inside the house. Mitch covers Annie with his coat, and through painful sobs, poor Kathy explains they had just returned from walking her friend back home when the assault from the birds began. Realizing they didn't have enough time for both of them to make it, Annie was able to push Kathy into her house, protecting Mitch's sister at the cost of her own life. In the absolutely indispensable book, Hitchcock Truffaut, the celebrated French director, actor, and screenwriter, Francois Truffaut, interviews Hitchcock about many of his celebrated films. On answering the question of why Annie died, Hitchcock replied, quote, I felt that in the light of what the birds were doing to the town, she was doomed. Besides, she sacrificed herself to protect the sister of the man she loves. It's her final gesture, end quote. Alfred Hitchcock is quite correct, but it does not lessen the tragedy of any Hayworth's death. Even I find my eyes getting a little misty when Mitch Brenner and Melanie Daniels discover the corpse of the school teacher. Same here, my friend. And it doesn't help the way that Hitchcock has her splayed out, resembling something like a broken doll. Besides, she is an incredibly likable character. As nightfall isn't too far away, Mitch and Melanie decide that their best bet is to go back to the Brenner farm and spend the remaining hours barricading the house, because the birds are starting to amass once again. Mitch is basically sealing themselves inside the house, sensing that another attack is imminent. And he's not wrong. Even though they've spent the time breaking up furniture to barricade the house with, they barely keep the birds out. I mean, there is a moment where blackbirds are pecking through the wood of the barricades, tearing at it. In actuality, dear listeners, those blackbird beaks were attached to hammers, with the film crew on the other side of the doors, chipping away at those wooden barricades. The attacking birds might not have been able to get into the Brenner home, but they do knock out the power box to the house, leaving Lydia, Kathy, Mitch, and Melanie in darkness. Thankfully, they have flashlights and candles, but after the latest assault is over, the stress and horror of the last few days is enough to drive each of them into sleep. Melanie hears something peculiar, though, and quietly, she follows the noise to the upstairs, to a bedroom. Opening the door and slowly entering it, she discovers that the birds were in fact able to get into the house, ripping a hole in the roof, and they wait until her flashlight beam illuminates them before swarming the poor woman. This attack is so fierce and sudden that Melanie is quickly dazed and falls to the floor as the birds continue to peck and slash at her clothing and face. This is what I was going to share with the listeners earlier, Serge. In Evan Hunter's original screenplay, Annie Hayworth survived up until this point in the picture. It was she who was supposed to investigate the noise in the bedroom and then perish. I'm kind of glad they changed it, man. It makes Annie's sacrifice feel more important. I think if it had been shot as was written, her death would come off a little cheaper. Anyway, Melanie is saved by Mitch in the nick of time, who is able to push open the door and drag her out, and not a moment too soon. She is in very bad shape and needs serious medical attention. Melanie Daniels is now all but comatose, and I suppose it is understandable, considering the attack she has just suffered. Mitch Brenner can perhaps sense that as the sun is beginning to rise, and the assault of the birds has ceased for the time being, that everyone should pile into the car in an attempt to reach San Francisco. 
The Brenners have patched up Melanie as best they can, but it's plainly obvious she needs to be taken to a hospital. When Mitch exits the house to get the car ready, he is stunned to find that as far as the eye can see, there are birds perched on the telephone wires, fence, and even hopping along on the ground. Mitch has to almost wade through them to get to the vehicle, taking his time, doing his best not to agitate them. Once he's in the car, he takes a moment to turn on the radio, which reveals that nearby towns have also been assaulted by the birds and that the military might be called in to attempt and fight back. Going back into the house, with the help of Lydia, the two are able to forcibly guide the frightened Melanie to the car. Kathy stays behind for a moment, requesting if it's okay that she bring the lovebirds along with her, as they are literally the only birds in the film that haven't acted bizarrely. Mitch agrees, and as the birds ends, we see the Brenner car driving slowly off into the distance, while legions of birds cry out, getting louder and louder and louder. Will they make it to San Francisco? I suppose it's up to the viewer to decide what fate awaits them as they drive away. There is some hope given, however, in that in scene, Victor, we can make out the rays of sunlight that are shining down in the distance, promising, perhaps, that the sudden revolt of the birds is finally at an end. Well, I can tell you that in the original screenplay, we were going to see Mitch driving with his family and Melanie through the remains of Bodega Bay. I take it the whole town was supposed to have been destroyed, dead bodies in the street being pecked at, cars over overturned, fired, etc. In addition, as they are almost out of Bodega Bay, since Mitch's car is a convertible, the birds were going to attack once again, ripping the roof to pieces before Mitch is able to slam down the accelerator and escape. And you might also be interested to know that Hitchcock had another ending in mind. He had played around with the idea that the final shot of the film was going to be the Golden Gate Bridge, now completely covered in birds. Suggesting, perhaps, that the birds have truly joined together, and that the time of humanity is at an end. Possibly. Definitely feels like that would have made the birds an apocalyptic film, right? While perhaps not as amazing as Psycho was, I have always enjoyed the birds. Even if its ending appears to push some Fright fans away. It reminds me of The Mist a little, the novella by Stephen King. No ending to speak of, but there is still that hope that it isn't the end of the world. And friends, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, as always, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. Peachy is on Twitter, by the way. Peachy Pixel 8. That's numeral 8, by the way. My co-host, The Projectionist, has closed his Facebook page for the time being, but he manages to share interesting trivia on films on a daily basis, or sometimes just vintage movie posters and behind-the-scene photographs on the Saturday Frights Facebook page. Just like with Rockford J, who I do want to thank for putting up with the abuse of The Projectionist on a nearly daily basis. I couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee page too. And I continue to write, of course, on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. If you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at VicSagePopCulture at gmail.com. For all things pop culture and retro-related, feel free to visit us at the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to The Retroist, not just for originally hosting the podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. 
If you like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. Our past catalog of episodes are slowly coming back online, but you can still listen to the entire collection over on the Internet Archive. We are also available on Google Podcasts and Spotify as well as Stitcher. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe.